0: See, it's all part of God's plan. And I say, you know, well, I won't use the language that I say in response to that on this show, but
1: it's You you can go ahead and say it's bullshit, man, if you want to. It's all right. (laughs) It's becoming our catchphrase, honestly. (laughs) Western
0: Christianity has spent the last two thousand years telling everyone they're separated from God.
1: This is not church with John and Nat Turney. Well, hello everybody, and welcome to another awesome episode of This Is Not Church. Uh, I am your host, Nat Turney. With me as always is my brother, John. Say hi, John. Hello, everybody. Uh, Thank you for not doing the hi, John thing again. I thought you might do it like one (laughs) more time, you know, just for for giggles, but you're like, no. No, I won't. I won't play your game. Okay, fine. So don't play my game. That's fine. (laughs) Hey, we have an awesome, awesome guest with us today. um, And I'm super excited. I've been wanting to talk to this guy for a while. And so I'm super happy that he's here. This is Thomas J. Ord, Ph.D. This guy's a theologian, a philosopher, a scholar of multidisciplinary studies. Ord directs the Center for Open and Relational Theology and Doctoral Students at Northwind Theological Seminary. He's an award-winning author and has written or edited more than 25 books. First of all, dang. That's a lot of books. All right, Sorry. I always do with the side. A gifted speaker, Ord lectures at universities, conferences, churches, and institutions. He is known for contributions to research on love, science, and religion, open and relational theology, the problem with suffering, and the implications of freedom for transformational relationships. You can check him out on his website, thomasjord.com. That's O-O-R-D because O-O, he's so good. I like that. Yeah. I made up that tagline. So if you, if you use it, I, I get a kickback, right? Because, oh, oh man! Um, we're going to talk about a lot of stuff today. Um, I have sort of made a habit of giving people my personal bio when they send me their professional bio. I like to I like to throw my personal, like uh, like this yeah. is how I know you or this is what I think of you. And yeah. um, so so my personal bio for Thomas. Or, or do you go, can I call you Tom? Is that okay? Tom is fine. Yeah. All right. Tom, Tommy. No, Tom, just kidding. Just, yeah. My baseball but,
0: coach called me no. Tommy, but he's the
1: last no. guy. I let. <laughs> yeah, so, so, okay, I've, I've taken it too far. I apologize. No. Tom, Tom is, he's a guy that when I first became aware of him, it was through the book, uh, his book, uh, The Uncontrolling Love of God. And uh, man, I liked that book. And then his I don't know if it was your follow up, but at least the next book that I was aware of was God Can't. And, and that book pissed me off. <laughs> like, like seriously, it rubbed me 10 different kinds of wrong. And then what I realized at some point was it was exposing in me, there were some places where I was still holding on to some fundamental beliefs that needed to be challenged. So all of us who are sort of neck deep or knee deep in this thing we have called deconstruction for some time, we, at some point, we feel like we've, man, we've done all that. And then a guy like Tom comes along and says, yeah, however, let me give you something else. And so (laughs) what we're going to talk about today is something that for me comes as close as anything I've ever heard to at least trying to understand the problem of evil in our world. And what what we said offline beforehand was I, I, I am convinced that this misunderstanding of God is probably, I think it's the leading cause of atheism in the world today because there's just so much disconnect between the God we all as Christians say that we follow and the existential reality we deal with on our day-to-day. So I just want to welcome Tom and say hello. Hey, Tom, welcome to the show, man.
0: Hey, thanks so much for inviting me. I'm looking forward to this.
1: Uh, I am too. I I don't even honestly know where to start. And so I'm just going (laughs) to jump knee deep into, I'm going to ask you just to kind of give us the you know the thousand, the thousand mile, the thousand foot, whatever it is. The view of of God can't. I know you have other books, but yeah, let, let's talk about the one that pissed me off so much. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm very well, just, just written, Give us an overview, man.
0: Yeah. Well, as you said, I'd written this book, "The Uncontrolling Love of God," in 2015. It's published by an academic press, and it was, you know, it was very well received. But a lot of people said, "I love the message of this book." But I need a book I can give to my mother or my sister or my mm. uncle that's more readable. And there were some additional ideas I really thought needed to be included uh, in the uncontrolling love of God. And so I thought, well, here's my opportunity to present a book at a level that you don't have to have a theology degree to understand, and I can address some of the unaddressed issues in the uncontrolling love of God. So. God can't has five big ideas. The first one is the most controversial. It says that God simply can't single-handedly prevent evil because God's love is always uncontrolling, and God always loves everyone and everything all the time. It's not that God is choosing not to, that God won't but could, but God simply can can't. It's impossible for God to single-handedly prevent you. Secondly, I say that God is a God who feels pain and suffering, feels the suffering that we feel after we do. Is a, a God who, uh, you know, is a fellow sufferer who understands what we go through. Third, I make the claim that God is actually trying to heal at all times and places, but can't heal single-handedly. So just like God can't control others to prevent evil, God also can't control us or our bodies or the environment or society to heal when things go bad. There has to be some kind of cooperation. And sometimes we can consciously be saying yes to God, but our bodily members, cells, factors, organisms, muscles, whatever, are not aligned or not in cooperation with God. So God's working to heal. And that's why we sometimes see it, but oftentimes don't. Third, oh no, fourth, (laughs) fourth big idea is that God works to squeeze some good out of the bad God didn't want in the first place. So you oftentimes hear people say, well, you know, God allows or even causes these, this suffering because God's got this beautiful plan and, and look, this good stuff came out of that bad event. See, it's all a part of God's plan. And I say, you know, well, I won't use the language that I say in
1: response to that on this show. but it's, you, you can go ahead and say it's bullshit, man, if you want to. It's all right. <laughs> it's becoming our catchphrase, honestly. Exactly.
0: <laughs> I think God works with whatever happens to try to bring some good out of it with our cooperation. But that's, that's very different from saying God either caused the bad or even allowed the bad in the first place. And then the fifth idea is also pretty radical. It says that God really needs our cooperation for love to win, the kingdom of heaven to come, whatever kind of language you want to put about a positive future. And some people will say, well, God invites us into the journey of, you know, making our lives better and transforming the world or whatever. But they kind of assume God has the kind of power that, you know, if we don't cooperate, God's just going to get the job done single-handedly. My view says, no, love can't win in its fullness unless we cooperate. God
1: actually needs our cooperation. So those are the five big ideas. Which of those ideas would you say you get the most? push back on. I think I have a guess. but Oh, number one. Yeah. The first one for sure. So number one. So what I found interesting is the first time, even just reading the title, my religious hackles kind of like, <laughs> you know, yeah. a little bit like, <laughs> you know, okay. Who does this guy? He's just I, you know. If I'm being honest, Tom, I have to make a confession. I'm like, he just put a provocative title on this book.
0: Yeah, Mark, right? he's or just something. trying to go. Hey, I'm going to read
1: this because this guy's probably a hack, and so I'm. I'm but the title is so compelling, I got to check it out. Um, so, if you haven't read this book, be assured that is not the case. <laughs> that is absolutely not what's happening. This is not the rush no. Limbaugh of theology. Just saying bombastic stuff to piss you off. This is this is for real, but. I have had some conversations now with folks, um, about what you present in this book and always the same pushback, always the same, you know, man, I mean, God can't, God's omnipotent. God is, and then we start to drill, you don't have to even drill down that hard. And we can come up with Bible verse after Bible verse that talks about God's limitations. So, so talk right. about some of those limitations that we know to be biblically accurate and true.
0: Right, a couple of times in
1: passages passage it
0: says, God can't tell a lie. The psalmist says, God can't grow tired. In the story of Hosea, God says, I can't give up on you. James says, God can't be tempted. My favorite passage, though, is the one in which the apostle Paul says to Timothy, when we are faithless, God remains faithful because God cannot deny himself. So, it's making the claim that there's things God can't do because to do them, God wouldn't be God. And I'm making the claim that God must love because it's God's very nature to love. And this love is inherently or necessarily uncontrolling. And since God loves always everyone, all the time, from the smallest particles to the most complex creatures, God simply can't control anyone or anything because to do so, God would have to deny God's
1: own self. Right? And then and then in order for love to be love as we as we pay attention to our own relationships and the people that we know who are in relationships where we see one person dominating over another, controlling them, coercing them, love me back or else. We call that we call that abuse. Right? right. <laughs> we call that what it is. We call the cops is what we do. Yeah. Um and yet, for some reason, we've bought this notion that God's love is like that. Um, I, I was talking to my son, my oldest son, who's a very rational, logical guy and has come to a lot of the stuff on his own. Thankfully, he's just, a, really? he's just a smart kid, you know, and he's just like, so dad, you know, I was taught growing up in church that um, God loves me and I should love him back or else. Um, <laughs> how is that not coercion? yeah. I said, well, it's 100% coercion. Well, then it can't be love. There, you're right. Man, you're already light years ahead. You won't waste 30 years of your life, you know, <laughs> preaching a message that you will be embarrassed about. So um, I love your C.S. Lewis quote. Uh, you put it in there that says that, that C.S. Lewis. And I love to bring up C.S. Lewis because he's the darling of both, you know. Anyway, he's very, a lot of conservative theologians love him. Um, fundamentalist theologians love him too. But then he says stuff like this, not even omnipotence can do what is self-contradictory. And the point that you made, I thought was interesting and brilliant, was that whatever constraints there are on God, they're not coming from the outside, right? These are not external right. constraints. These are, so explain that and then I'm going to kick it over to John for a, for a question.
0: Yeah, well, in especially amongst academics, but also sometimes people in church, they'll say well okay god is not in control god gives free will or something like that and then they'll they'll say they'll give two possible reasons one is that god has voluntarily decided to be self-limited and give this freedom and not intervene not take it away at least not very often usually people have this view have these caveats, you know, (laughs) but occasionally you'll have someone who's really thorough going. He says, no, God, you know, is giving this freedom and God could control us, but God is self-limited and chooses not to. Well, the problem with that, of course, is that every evil that happens, you have to say, well, you mean this wasn't bad enough for you to step in and stop it? You know, your sister gets raped and you think, okay, God, you were self-limited and you allowed this. That makes no sense. A loving person wouldn't allow that. On the other side, however, are people who talk as if there's something outside of God that's constraining God. Maybe they'll say it's the God-world relationship, or the laws of nature, or principalities and powers, or the devil, or something. Something outside of God, and God's like, oh, man, I'd really like to help her out here, but this thing is stopping me. I'm against that view, too. My view says it's God's very nature that constrains God, because that tells us who God is. And I think love comes first in God's nature. And this love is always uncontrolling. Therefore, God simply can't control others because to do so, as we mentioned earlier, would be to deny
1: God's own nature. Yeah, let that sink in for a minute, guys. You may want to pause the podcast for a second and just (laughs) soak in that for a second. I'm actually kind of being serious. Like, Just hit pause and go, what does it mean that God self-limits? um and i think honestly if if we're honest about that i think man just we just know on some level that resonates as true even though at first blush it makes god it, it sounds like weakness and so you know having been raised in the west having been raised in america having lived the last 20 years of my life in texas and west texas to boot um my jesus looks more like rambo than anybody than anything else and so this conscious well you
0: think about it like you know, I don't know if you guys remember a movie that came out a decade or more ago called Bruce Almighty. You know, when Hollywood did a pretty puts, good
1: job, I thought.
0: Yeah, but when Hollywood puts out a movie to describe God, they don't call it Bruce All Loving. They call <laughs> it Bruce Almighty, right? Because it's, it's right. like a default we all have that God, by definition, must have a certain kind of power. Now, right. I think God is powerful. I'm not saying God's a wimp. I'm not I'm not saying God's a do nothing. I think God's active all the time. In fact, the most powerful. But I don't think God has the kind of controlling power that most people think God has when they say God is omnipotent or sovereign
1: or whatever. Right. For sure. Love it, man. One of the
2: questions that I that came up for me as I was as I was reading God Can't is so we've been taught that God loves us unconditionally. Without fail. But to some people, I think that this, your idea of God being an un, un- uncontrolling love, is in contradiction to this idea of unconditional love. You know, when you look at like the way you would react to a bad thing happening, right, within your life, if you saw something happening to one of your family members, you would jump in because you love them unconditionally. So, what's the argument that says that that's not the truth? <laughs> I don't want to say it's not the case with God because I, I I think that He does love unconditionally, and I'm kind of playing devil's advocate because I'm, I'm actually no, on your side on this. But yeah, <laughs> the question that that I get when I when I mention your book and I explain it is, well, how can how can that be an unconditional love if he if he or they or universe or whatever you want to call God isn't willing to step in? Right. Yeah.
0: So I mean, most people they get what uh, Nat said earlier about you know. The parent or the person who tries to coerce all the time or manipulate, right. that's not love. But then they say to themselves, hold on a second. You know, what if my two-year-old or three-year-old is outside in the backyard and starts running toward the pool, freely choosing to to, to go toward it and might go in and drown? And I'm close enough that I can grab that three-year-old and prevent the drowning. Isn't that a loving act? Didn't I intervene against that kid's free will to prevent that kid from dying? I want to say, yes, that's a loving act. However, this gets to a really important point, and one that I think most Christians haven't really thought a lot about. And this is the idea that God is not a localized body. God is a universal spirit. The Christian tradition has said this is incorporeal, which is bodiless. So God doesn't have a hand to reach out and grab a three-year-old like you and I do. So I think God calls upon us to use our bodies to grab three-year-olds if we're close enough and, you know, around. But, um, yeah, so God doesn't have the kind of bodily factors that we have that sometimes we're able to use to prevent evil. So God can be unconditionally loving everyone all the time, doing the absolute utmost as a universal spirit without a localized body.
1: And you know, and before people jump and scream and yell,
0: heresy,
1: right? We need a heresy button like Matt and those guys have, right? Heresy. <laughs> <laughs> but before you do that, um that's not that's not crazy. No, uh, before that's... I read it in your book, as soon as you as soon as I started reading that part in your book, I immediately saw, thought of Teresa of Avila. Oh, and I immediately yes. thought of cuz I have seen this in the churches I've attended and the places where I've spent time. And, um, it's a, and it's an especially sort of Catholic Orthodox, you know, very, you know, old, um, traditional poem. I don't know. I don't know exactly when Teresa of Avila lived, but you know, middle ages, I think, and I could yeah, be way yeah. wrong. So if I am, yeah. I'm, but you know, that, that her poem that says Christ has no body, but yours. Right. And I actually have it written down. Let's, let's read this real quick. Cause it's good. Um, Christ has no body now, but yours, no hands, no feet on earth, but yours, yours are the eyes through which he looks compassion on this world. Yours are the feet, which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands through which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands, yours are the feet, yours are the eyes, yours are his body. Christ has no body now on earth, but yours. And we read that, we go, oh man, that's, that's good. And then when you say it unpoetically, People go, Heretic. So John's right. Sometimes you can say something poetically you can't say through prose
0: and not have people like slap you, right? Well, sometimes people will also take that prayer and they'll affirm a kind of theology called deism, which is the idea that God created the world and is now kind of watching from a distance, eating popcorn, saying, you know, hey, boy. Look how things are going screwing up right now. That pandemic is screwing every you know, whatever. Right, right, um, sure. And therefore, they say, well, we're God's hands and feet. We got to do something because God's not around. I don't buy that. I think God is truly present and active. But if we want to literally talk about hands and feet, then I think Teresa Avila is exactly right. God doesn't have actual hands like you and I do, but... When we respond to God's call to use our hands, that we become God's metaphorical hands and feet,
2: God's metaphorical body. Yeah. So the hands and feet of Jesus, right? Is this is this phrase that the church likes to use? But it seems inevitably, it's the hands and feet of Jesus to do things that the church needs you to do. Like, hey, who's, <laughs> yeah. who's gonna who's gonna run uh, who's gonna run daycare today? Who's gonna yeah. who's gonna run the rummage sale for us? Who's gonna hey we need to be the hands and feet of Jesus? Be the right. hands and feet of Jesus, guys. <laughs> Many hands make a light load, John. Right. So right. It, it seems like it gets this idea that it gets flipped on us and it's almost like a, like a bait and switch, right? Yeah,
0: it can be abused for sure. It happens yeah. all the time. Because churches rely upon volunteers and yep. And I think God does want us to use our hands and feet. It's just that right. especially yes. in the um, in situations in which people have traditions of doing certain things in certain ways, and you've got to have, you know, like you said, someone to run the nursery or someone to lead the music, and uh, they can use guilt and, and things that are not positive.
1: Right. But also, let me do the flip side of this, John. When we view God— as an intervener, first and foremost, right? How for how long and how often have we then washed our hands of the need to do something? Because well, well, if God will do it, right? So uh, I remember seeing a—I don't know if it was, a, it was a cartoon or something. It might have even been one of David Hayward's, uh, the Naked Pastor, who we need to have on the show, by the way. But anyway, it might have been. So if I'm attributing this to you, brother, I'm sorry. But uh, anyway, essentially, it was you know, person asking God. You know, man, when are you going to feed the hungry? When are you going to clothe the naked? When are you going to take care of this problem? And and God's response is, yeah, I was going to ask you the same thing. You know, and so I think we've let ourselves off the hook an awful lot to do the things because this Deus ex machina thing still kicks in, and we still feel like God's going to swoop in and save the day. When, as Teresa Vavilov aptly puts it, we are the hands and feet of Jesus for real, in a, in a metaphorical sense, yes, but also in a very real sense. That if we want to see change in the world, I feel like it's up to us to do it and not lay you know, it on our hands for God to do it. It's interesting you bring
0: in that thing from David Hayward, because I use that meme when I do public lectures, and it's one of the last ones I use for the day. And, and it shows, uh, if it's the meme you're th- that I'm thinking of, it shows Jesus sitting on a park bench with another guy, yeah, and the guy saying, exactly no, right. yeah. well, why, where, why didn't you stop all this, that, the other? And Jesus yeah. says, well, I was about to ask you the same question. <laughs> Well, that's a funny joke if if you believe in God like I do. But the vast majority of people I know think God does have the power to fix all those problems single-handedly. So it's not a stupid question if you think that God has omnipotent power to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, etc., all alone. Then you're starting to wonder, well, hey, if God can do this all alone and isn't doing it, Maybe I shouldn't either because I might just be going against God's will. Maybe God does want all those people sick, et cetera, et cetera. But if you have my view that God simply can't do that single-handedly and God requires our cooperation, well, then David's little meme of Jesus saying, I was going to ask you the same question, then it's a funny
1: meme that makes perfect sense. Right. No, that's, that's awesome. And, uh, I'm glad to remember, I'm glad to know it actually was David Hayward. So <laughs> I think it was, I'm like, no, no, that that's what it was. That's what it was. Um, I have this tendency to remember fragments of things and go like, Hey, I remember <laughs> like, you know, like this. I think it was like this. And yeah. Um, talking to some people, it's like, man, they have perfect recall and I'm super jealous of that. Yeah. But, me um, too. Which, which man, what what you're saying makes so much sense. I wanted to talk to you about then, then, on the other side of your coin of a God who's self-limiting and a God who's uncontrolling is this hyper-sovereignty that yeah. some people preach. And there's some guys with some large platforms who will tell you that every single thing that ever happens on planet Earth from time immemorial till now is always the active will of God. Yeah. What do you say to those people without being you know, too profane? Well,
0: I think, I think those people who want that kind of God, it, it, it's easiest for me to assess them psychologically. That is, it's easiest for me to say, people who want a God who controls everything want security. Right. When things go bad, even though they don't understand it, they want to say, this must be a part of God's plan, and that feels good to them. Even when they're in the midst of massive pain, right? I know people who are hardcore, God is in control, people who go through rotten things in life, the kind of things that make most people decide not to believe in God anymore, and they somehow feel comforted believing that God's in control. And they throw out their minds. They say, I can't rationalize it. I can't understand it, It's a mystery. God's ways are not my ways, all that kind of stuff those kind of phrases, they throw it out and they get a kind of psychological comfort and security thinking, well, this is God's plan. Now, I'm not one of those per- people. <laughs> and most people on planet earth that I know are not those kind of people. And I think for good reason, because I think we ought to ask if God is truly loving, then why would God not stop the crap that happens in our life And in the world, and not just little things, big things, horrific things. And the usual answer, even from sophisticated colleagues in the academy, theologians I hang out with, is usually some version of the mystery card. They reach into their back pocket, they plunk it on the table and say, boom, mystery. Yep, mystery. And I just want to say, come on. That's
1: a cop-out, man.
0: It is a cop-out, especially when they've got these really sophisticated arguments for other things about God. And I think, you know, polls indicate what you said earlier is the case. The problem of evil is the number one reason atheists say they can't believe in God. It's number one. So if you got this really fine-tuned version of the atonement or this really intricate view of the virgin birth, but you're throwing the mystery card down on the problem of evil, I'm saying, right, man, you're, right. you're, you're playing, you're, you're, you're not playing the game well. <laughs> I'll just put it that way.
1: <laughs> well, and you become like really easy pickings for any half intelligent atheist. Exactly. You don't even have to be that smart to go. Yeah. None of that right. makes any sense to me. Your guy right. is awful, actually.
0: And I was an atheist myself once. So I, I have very strong sympathies for people who choose atheism in the name of, Intelligence. I'm, I, I respect that big time. I just don't think that's the only place you have to go. But yeah.
1: I'm in the same place, and um, I have that several of my friends are atheists. I have lots of, you know, I don't even like to use that label because I'm not sure any, what, anymore what that really sure. means. But um, there's a, I, I probably follow more people on Facebook and YouTube that are atheists because they could actually present a rational argument way more often than people like us. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. but, um, but I was going to ask John this because. I want him to tell a little bit of his story real quick just about because he mentioned, well, through circumstances out of my control, I end up back in the church. But what happened was John shattered his leg in a, Mm. let's face it, John, a really dumb accident working working on his house. And so um, I wasn't aware that while he's down with this injury and he's healing that he's going through some of this process because we really we had stopped talking about religion for like 20 years, man. It wasn't fruitful. It wasn't constructive. And we wanted to stay friends. So we just, man, we just, we just didn't talk about it. And um, I'll tell my own story someday about some of the damage I caused in that relationship by being a zealot and a dick. But um, <laughs> the, um, <laughs> but what I was really nervous about was that John was going to see that God had knocked him off that ladder. And I want to see if you ever had that thought, John, that God got your attention
2: <laughs>
1: by throwing you off a ladder and breaking your leg because something good came out of it.
2: Um. I guess for, for, for good. I mean, no, I didn't um, <laughs> Okay, <good>. um, <laughs> see how much more spiritually mature you are. <laughs> I was so, I was so much removed from any kind of faith at that time. Uh, I'd gone through some other, you know, some pretty um, heavy stuff with my son and God wasn't there for me through that. Um, so yeah, I mean, through a stupid, angry moment of me trying to fix a water line on my house, I ended up Twisting my leg and giving myself a spiral fracture. Ugh. Oof! Right, which uh, Still put me thinking about it. Yeah, put me out of commission for about six months. I couldn't. I couldn't walk oh. for about three months, and then uh, it was right when my daughter was starting high school, and uh, I could. I got to the point where I could drive by the time she started as a freshman in high school, and so I drove my daughter to school every morning because we hadn't. We hadn't even figured out how she would get in school because we live thirty-five minutes away from the school because we live up in the mountains. And it just kind of worked out. And then I would meet my parents for breakfast every morning after I dropped off my daughter. Well, I would I'm sorry, I would go and I'd walk Target because I was told I had to walk every day. And then I would so I'd circle inside Target because they were open. And then I'd go and sit down and have breakfast with my parents. And my dad, it's funny that Nat would bring up C. S or that he would talk about C. S. Lewis in the quote, because my dad would keep asking me to read this book by C. S. Lewis. And my response was, I'm not reading anything by old English white guys. I just, I have, I have, I, love it. I have no, I have no desire to do that. Yeah. And uh, he actually, I mean, it wasn't just Lewis that he was throwing at me. It was Lewis. It was Murray. It was uh, Moody. I mean, it was, Tozer. I mean, Tozer. It was all these guys, right? Spurgeon. And uh, I, I picked Lewis because at least I knew who he was. Because yeah. I read the Chronicles of Narnia. And, uh, like Nat was saying, I'm, I'm kind of analytical. I, I, I need, I need definitions. I need reasons. I need, I need, I need strong backing to, to something someone says, you can't just tell me something. And then, and then I go, oh, okay, that that's okay. That's just it. So he had me read mere Christianity. And, um, every time I would have an argument, I'd go, yeah, but I would turn the page and he'd answer it. So it was like a, a young faith at that point, even though it was me re reimagining or reconnecting to my faith. I, I can honestly say I go back and read it now. And I, I don't I don't agree with like 50 percent of it, if not more. Now.
0: That's so wild because I'm the same way. That is yeah. so wild. It was formative in my early life. And yeah. and if for writing God can't, I went back and read Mere Christianity. I thought, man, what did I see in this book? <laughs> but it was helpful at the time, so
2: <laughs> I must have saw something. <laughs> and, yeah, I read it. Uh, I I read it once a year now because it was what was that kind of reconnected me. And each year, I, I I I agree with less, and but I'm okay with that. I think I think that's 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 just a sign of growth, right? Just to answer your question, I mean, briefly, no. I, I, I never once did it even cross my mind that uh, God did this to get my attention, to have me uh, kind of reevaluate my faith, so I can start walking the straight and narrow, whatever you want to call it. Uh, it did reconnect me to a faith. Uh, it's it's not the faith that I think um, anybody thought I would be connecting with, but it, it. But I don't think it was done, you know, in in any way, shape, or form by God.
1: And I spent so much of my life in the church listening to people say exactly that, though. Like, man, I tell you what, if it wasn't for that cancer, you know, ah, God got my please. attention because, boy, I was laid up in my bed for all that night. I was at my wits end and God had to, you know, I don't, it just, it, it, it used to sound good. You know what I mean? It yeah. used to sound like bringing evil out, you know, out, bringing good out of evil, bringing something out of it. And then I started thinking about, yeah. The other point you make that I want to ask you about is this, because you made this point about Oklahoma City. And I was like, that's brilliant. And so for those who haven't read the book, first of all, go get the book, read it. Second of all, read the book. Third of all, you um, <laughs> make the point in this book that, you know, there were these actors in the Oklahoma City bombing who, who, who were the ones who planted the bomb and the ones who plotted it and the ones who did it. And they're guilty. Timothy McVeigh is executed. Uh, the other guy whose name I forget, he's life in prison, whatever he gets. But there was a third person who was charged. Tell us about that. Yeah, the third person knew about the bombing, knew what was being planned,
0: but didn't participate in it. Didn't build the bomb, didn't go with the people, but had knowledge that it was going to go on. Well, the Oklahoma uh, officials uh, convicted this guy for failing to alert authorities. And so I use that in the book to say, um, you know, look, if you think that God's, you know, morally perfect, perfectly loving, just because God didn't cause evil, even though God knew it was going to happen, then you're saying that, you know, this person in Oklahoma who knew about the bomb is really, you know, is is innocent. But we all know that that's not the case. If we know with you know maybe not certainty but we're confident something bad is going to happen and we have the capacity to alert someone or stop it ourselves than a perfectly loving person even not perfectly loving just a loving person like a normal is, loving person <laughs> yes right <laughs> and uh you know when i hear a lot of times people say this and and i said it when i was younger too they gave the free will of defense they'd say well you know, God doesn't want to take free away free will, even though God could, they think. But God wants to respect our free will. And so I will oftentimes give an illustration. I'll say, suppose that um, it's a summer day and I live in Idaho and there's a creek that runs behind my house. And and uh, my kids, when they were younger, would often play in the creek. Suppose on some hot summer day, I'm in my backyard and I look up. And my oldest daughter has the head of my youngest daughter underneath the water and is trying to drown her. You know, maybe they've been in an argument or something and, you know, it's gotten out of hand. And now my oldest daughter is going to kill my youngest daughter by drowning. Now, suppose I'm close enough that I could wade out into the water and save my youngest daughter, but I say to myself, hey, who am I to mess around with my daughter's free will here? I mean, I'm not causing this death. I'll just go ahead and allow her to use her freedom to kill her sister. Well, if I did that, nobody in my subdivision would vote me father of the year. My, my wife would not say, you know, boy, that's my husband. He's such a loving guy. He just lets his daughters kill each other. And yet most people I know think that God has the kind of power to prevent something from going on and Could take away freedom momentarily to stop some bad thing, but God says, Well, you know, who am I to interrupt free will? And I say, No, it's got to be more than that. It's got to be more than God is just allowing people to use their free will wrongly. I think God simply can't take away freedom or agency or even the smallest agents or uh, smallest uh, bit of indeterminacy at the quantum level of reality
1: okay, now you've gotten into the quantum stuff. So, <laughs> That's right. I'm out. My intellect is yeah. tapped at the word quantum. Um, unless we're going to talk, talk about James Bond and the quantum of solace, in which case I'm, I'm still out. Um, uh, but, um, beautiful. There's so much, man. There's so much there. I, I Do you ever draw a distinction between free will in the abstract and like actual free will? Like, like there are there are portions of our lives that I think are so weighted down with with deceit and disillusionment that I wonder sometimes how free our choices really are you know and I, I would think oh, especially see, in terms see, yeah. of especially in terms of eternity, especially in terms of what happens after this life you know those people will say that well, if you die and you have not accepted Jesus, uh, God gave you free will, man. You chose. You chose hell. You chose this, and I wonder. I've had this talk with a bunch of people over the years, but at what point can we honestly say we've made a free will choice? If if the lenses we're seeing through are so jacked up and so messed up with all kinds of stuff, and particularly if you've come from, a, you know, say an abusive childhood or something of that nature, what do, you, what do you think about that?
0: I think we always have genuine but limited freedom. So we're not free to do anything. We're always constrained by our environment, by our biology, by our history, by our you know knowledge. All those kind of things reduce the kind of options we have moment by moment. But I do think we continue to have real options in the moment. And what is the most or best thing for some people to do might not be the best for other people to do because of you know other options that other people have in front of them. So. Um, I think we're generally free now. The question about the afterlife is uh, one that I'm very. Um, my view is again. Uh, I was going to say unorthodox, but that's probably not the right word. Uh, at least, so your view is orthodox. <laughs> <laughs> there you go.
1: <laughs> which is, which is, as we've discussed, is the new heresy.
0: <laughs> that's right. So um, I, I like to think that they're like. Basically, three major ideas about the afterlife, and I want to propose a fourth idea. The most common one, the heaven and hell one that God sends some people to eternal conscious torment. I just don't even think that's even a viable option. I don't think it's in the Bible. I don't think a loving God would do that. So, I mean, I just think the traditional idea of hell is just makes no sense and no one should believe it. So I'm going to just take that one right off the table. Second one is annihilation. It says that, uh, you know, God is either going to resurrect everyone and then destroy the unrighteous, annihilate them, or God is only going to resurrect the righteous and just passively let the unrighteous stay dead.
1: Right. So the sort of conditional mortality, immortality thing, right? right? Yeah. yeah.
0: I, I don't like that view either because it, Sounds to me like God just gives up on people. God says, you know, Jennifer, I gave her 3,987 chances. I'm not going to give her one more. Um, And I think God's love is steadfast. It never gives up. It always hopes. So the annihilation view just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Third view, usually called universalism, says, well, God's going to guarantee that everyone enjoys eternal life, bliss, heaven, whatever. I think the only way God can make that kind of guarantee is if God has the kind of power to do so. In fact, God would have the kind of power to force some people into a heavenly afterlife even if they don't want to go, which they would then experience as hell, right? <laughs> yeah, well, probably. Yeah. But if God's got that kind of power in the afterlife, then God ought to use that power right here and right now to prevent right, for genuine sure. evil. So, um, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. It's it's more hopeful, obviously, but it doesn't make a lot of sense. My view, I call it the relentless love view. It says that God always, moment by moment, in everyone's life who's capable of responding, and when I say everyone, I mean other creatures, including uh, not only humans but other creatures as well. God always invites us to a life of love. There's always the invitation in this life. And in the next, moment by moment, relentlessly, God is always offering us a life of love. And when we accept that in each moment, we enjoy the benefits of a loving relationship. If we reject it, God always invites again in the next moment. But there are just natural negative consequences that come from rejecting love. It's not like God's punishing us. It's not like God saying, well, you're saying no, and I'm pissed at you. I'm going to, you know, make you pay. None of that stuff. It's just that there are natural consequences from saying no to what's good. And I think God constantly, relentlessly, everlastingly invites everyone to that loving relationship. And I think there's the real hope that everyone will eventually say yes but it's not the kind of guarantee that could only come if God had the kind of power to force people to say yes.
1: Right. Well, and you make a good point that if you could, then then, 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 then why wouldn't why he intervene you? all the time in other places? Um, right. There's something you said in this book, and I think I, I think I just copied and pasted it into my notes. So God never intervenes because God is always already present. And so even maybe our sense of God's needing to intervene it denotes a thought or at least implies that we think at some point he withdrew, right? And now he's yes. going to come back. And then he withdrew and now he's going to come back. What is, am I, am I stating that? Am I stating that's that correctly? right? That's,
0: that's very well put. I think like in the average person on the street, the, the their thinking goes something like this. Um, I don't see God walking around anywhere. I don't always feel God. So maybe God comes and goes. In fact, sometimes even biblical language will give that impression. God disappeared or left the scene or something. And so the idea is, well, if God sometimes leaves, then maybe God has to intervene or interrupt you know, things to come in and do something. And I want to say, no, God's always already present. It's just always in an uncontrolled way. And we can't perceive God with our five senses. So we can't see God walking the dog and Sunday afternoon in the park. So then there's kind of the more academic argument, which is usually tied to a particular way of thinking about the laws of nature and and science, which says, look, we have to have fully natural explanations for what's happening in the world. We wouldn't want to have a God who supernaturally jumps in every once in a while and does something. We have this, what we in philosophy, we call this causal closure that the world is a system of causes that are closed to any outside interaction. And I want to say to that view, no, God's always already present. So any kind of closure has to include God as a cause in it. So those are the two kinds of ways that people tend toward this kind of interventionist language. And I want to say we should just get rid of interventionist
2: language. It doesn't help us. Well, the, the church doesn't help either because the church uh, does this, you know, inviting God back into their place in their yes. presence, right? Or, Invocations, uh, yeah. Right. Um, asking the Holy Spirit to come. We, I mean, we do it in song. We do it in sermon. We do it in prayer. And it's. if I understand it correctly, what you're saying is that's not necessary at all because he's, he's always there. He's never not there. Exactly what I'm saying, yes. This has bugged me since I was
0: in high school. I just, (laughs) I always thought this just was the wrong way to think about things. You know, come Holy Spirit, come. Well, hold on a second. Holy Spirit's already here and it's already been here. Here's another thing that bugs the heck out of me. Since I'm on a roll here, (laughs) of things (laughs) that bugged me. I hate it every December when we start talking about the Incarnation as if God wasn't already around previous to Jesus coming on the scene and isn't already with us right now. I think God is always incarnate in all of reality, in all of life, especially incarnate in Jesus, yes, but always incarnate in the sense of being present and active in the world. And when we respond positively to God's presence, to God's call, Then that hands and feet stuff that we've talked about earlier, but we then become vessels or reveal God's ways in powerful kinds of, of manners. But the incarnation, as if God did it one time 2,000 years ago in this Jesus thing, that bugs the heck out of me. I'm getting going now. I'm gonna start preaching. All right, yeah. Come on, get rolling. Right
2: <laughs> I love it. So if I understand, if I understand it correctly, then what you're saying is maybe Jesus is more of like a—I don't want to say a focal point, uh, but something that we can we can point to and say here is here is our connection to the incarnation of, uh, of God. I want to say Jesus is our clearest picture of what God
0: is like in terms of God's nature. So Jesus reveals God better than I do for sure, better than snails do. But um, we don't have to say God, Jesus is the only revelation of God. Even the Bible doesn't say that.
1: Well, and what you said about um, about God's God's presence is um, something that I, I first read, I was reading a Richard Rohr book, Everything Belongs. In fact, I was preaching out of it for a little while for a. Uh, contemplative prayer series that I was doing. And uh, Richard makes the statement and he said it a bunch of times since, but we're already there. We're at whatever, wherever there is in the presence of God, we're already there. All that's lacking is our awareness. And so Brad Jersak says something to the effect of, okay, well, God, you know, the, the the light turned on and some of us have opened our eyes. But the sun is objectively shining. The light is objectively on. The presence of God is objectively here. To the degree that we cooperate and we participate, that's the degree to which I think we'll be aware of it and we'll enjoy the benefits of being aware of it. Does that make sense to you?
0: Yes, I think so, yeah. So it's not only our perception of God that we need to be inclined to perceiving God. And here, let me get technical just for a second and say, I don't think we can perceive God with our five senses. I don't think we actually hear God through our eardrums or see God, or taste God, or smell God, or touch God. However, I do believe that God, we perceive God through non-sensory perception. And this involves a particular metaphysics or ontology that that says we have a real interaction with God at a non-sensory level. So when we say we hear God's voice, we shouldn't have to think that it comes to our eardrums, but we have this impression, this intuition, this nudge, this, you know, still small voice, all these kinds of language we use to talk about God acting in ways that we think God is telling us or nudging us or giving us some information. So those kinds of ways of talking about uh, God being revealed are kind of perceptive in the sense of direct. But also when we cooperate with what we think God is calling us to do and see others do it, then we have some visual ways of thinking about, okay, that person, John just did a loving thing. I think God is the source of that love. John is cooperating. I, John is revealing God's love at work in the world. So then we can kind of use our five senses in that way.
1: Wow. Yeah. Um, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, I just got real, real articulate. Wow. No, that's good. man. that's good.
2: You, you, you kind of mentioned, a, uh, talking about contentment of prayer. So, I mean, it, it kind of triggered a question I had and that is, so with this idea of uncontrolling love, where how does prayer fit in? Um, because, you know, growing up, um, I actually just wrote a blog about certain types of prayers, but uh, a lot of our prayers are us just asking God for things. And uh, I, I, I can only speak for myself. I can't speak for anybody else, but I, I have very few moments where I can say, God, gave me anything I asked for. So I think there's something else going on, And um, but it kind of connects with uh, prayer and miracles, I think.
0: Yeah, I think just so our listeners know that you know, there's a lot, variety of different kinds of prayers, but what we're talking about here is what most people call petitionary prayers, right. as you said, God asking, asking God to do something. Right. If you have a God is in control kind of view, God controls absolutely everything, Man, I don't know why you pray. <laughs> like I can't I can't get motivated to pray if I think God has predestined everything from the foundation of the world. Cuz I mean, I suppose if I prayed, I would have to say God predestined me
1: to pray, but it just doesn't I'm not. Right, just the circle yeah. goes on, man.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Most people I know, even hardcore Calvinists don't actually act like that when it comes right, true. to pray. They actually think their prayers are going to make some kind of difference, at least sometimes. So most of them think they have a view of God as something like this. Well, God wants us to ask, and might respond by doing things because we ask, or might decide we need to ask more, pray harder, put it on the prayer chain, you know, ask 78 times, whatever. As if God is sort of sitting back, arms folded, saying, You know, I could just fix this single handedly, but you gotta work for it. You got If
1: you just prayed that eightieth time.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah. Man,
1: you gave up. Yeah.
0: And that just makes no sense to me. That's not a picture of a loving God. If God can single handedly fix things by answering our prayers and God chooses not to, when it's the loving thing, then that's not a loving God. I don't I can't believe it. I anymore. agree. So what I, I find is that people, especially in the more progressive Christian circles, they see the problems with the first two models, the God who either controls everything or sits back, arms folded, and doesn't act until we beg. And they go to a third model, and that's the model that says, well, prayer doesn't really change God, it only changes me. Now, I understand why people want to go that direction because of the problems of unanswered prayer and the theology of a God who's sitting back. But my proposal is a fourth model, and it actually says our petitionary prayers make a real difference. It assumes three things. First of all, it assumes that God is a relational God, that our actions have an effect upon God, that my prayer is an action and it can have an effect on God. It may sound strange to you and people who are, who are listening to this to think that I have to say God is relational, but the majority of Christian theologians in history have denied that God is relational. Augustine, Aquinas, Luther, Calvin, they all said God is totally unaffected by what happens in the world. I think that's crap. And the Bible thinks that's (laughs) crap. So I think God is affected by what happens in the world, and prayers are things that happen. Second, I think we live in an interrelated world. My activities affect my body and affect others and my environment. And so my actions affect others. Third, I think God experiences time moment by moment like we do. That means that my actions in one moment have an effect upon God and in the next moment might open up new opportunities, new avenues for action because God has new data or new information from my prayers and the rest of the world, et cetera, from the previous moment. It doesn't mean that my prayers somehow make God able to control some situation. I don't believe in control of God. But I do believe that my actions can make a real difference to God and can affect the future because God is acting also moment by moment and acting in light of what has happened in the past.
1: So that's
0: my view of petitionary prayer.
1: Yeah, that's interesting because I think I would bet you if you polled 10,000 Christians and, and posed a question that whether or not God exists inside or outside of time, they would all say, oh, no, he certainly transcends time. Yeah. So, and we have, you know, we have enough biblical proof text to, you know, a day in his presence is a thousand years elsewhere. We can, we can talk about how time is a human construct. But, um, I think you would say at the quantum level, even that's probably not true. There's an objective reality to time. Um, and that any God that created that system must also be then on some level subject to the same system. Does that make sense? I mean, I'm not sure if that's, I may be completely out in left field, but that's kind of where I feel like you're going with that.
0: That's where I'm going. I'm what's in the uh, what's called an open theist. I think the future is open for God; it hasn't yet been determined. In fact, God can't know it perfectly or exhaustively because it hasn't yet happened. And there's lots of biblical support for that view. It may surprise some people, but uh, you know, more than forty times in the Bible, God is said to repent, which is to have a change of mind. Um,
2: and i could tell tons of stories to illustrate this but that's the basic idea. Yeah, i mean i i, I think i would agree with that. I mean, i i have always had a hard time thinking, well if god knows everything and knows the future. What why do i even try? What's the point of trying? Exactly. Um, I'm, exactly. Just gonna, I'm just going to i'm just going to move forward doing what i feel like i'm supposed to do because god already knows i'm going to do it anyway. So i'm just going to be who i want to be. You know, if that's me being messed up, that's me being messed up. Because God already knows that's going to happen. And so... Yeah, well, think about it like this. If God
0: knows that Jim is going to rape Jennifer and God can't make a mistake, then there's nothing that can change Jim raping Jennifer. And therefore, it sounds like Jim really doesn't have the freedom not to rape Jennifer. Now, all of a sudden, you've got People acting, doing horrific things, but since they weren't free to stop from doing them, how should we keep them or make them morally responsible? So the whole idea of genuine freedom, in my view, goes right down the toilet if you think that God knows everything that's going to happen in the future. I just don't think the future is knowable by anyone because it's not yet a thing.
2: Well, with with that in mind and with the idea of prayer and the idea of miracles, I mean, is, is it more reasonable to ask or to say a prayer like maybe asking myself to be more present and more understanding sure. because i think like you were saying that god can't god cannot um work alone correct um so single-handedly determine things right right, yeah. right. um so is it more more responsible response or thought process to keep myself aware and in the moment to do though to see those things that need that need my love that need my connection to need my help so is that a more logical um, not maybe not even a prayer maybe even more like a meditation or a, a, a mindfulness
0: either one works for me I pray prayers like this often I say God give me wisdom to know how I ought to love in this next month or in this situation or in some conflict with my family my wife my co-workers, whatever. Uh, so I'm asking God to do something. So it's a real petitionary prayer, but I'm asking for information, for wisdom, for insight, you know, whatever language you like there. I'm not saying God force my co-worker to do what I want done because I don't think God can force anyone to do it.
1: Yeah, that's great. I mean, there's Oh, man, I feel like we just got started. Like we're just getting going. Man. I know. I know. There's so much stuff that as you talk, it's like my, my notes just kind of went, whatever. Um, so. Well, let me say, some,
0: let me say something real quick, because um, when John was asking about prayer, he quickly slipped in miracles. Um, I wrote a follow-up book to God Can't called Questions and Answers for God Can't, and there's a whole chapter on prayer, so if you want to go deeper than what I've just said, right. let look at that one. there's a whole chapter on miracles. So uh, if you or the folks who are listening to that have those questions, let me recommend that book, Questions and Answers for God's not
1: Great. All right. <laughs> that would be I would I would highly recommend. Um, and I, 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 I Man, I guess it's time to maybe start thinking about shutting this down. But can I tell you, I, yeah. I don't want to. Um, so, um, what what I I, I really don't, I mean, every conversation we have, I always feel like, man, we, and I could talk for, so what it means is we've left some meat on the bone for next time. Cause I would, you know, I want to have everyone back all the time and you are, you are quickly becoming one of my, one of my favorite people, certainly one of my favorite writers. And, and I, I honestly, because you just are challenging the heck out of me. And I like that. I need that, you know, I need, I need to be, I think we all need to confront some of these things and, um, and so we want to make sure that people know how to contact you, how to, how to interact with you, whether on social media, if you've got a website, give us all your, all your pertinent info.
0: I'm pretty active on Facebook and Twitter, so if folks want to contact me there, my website, we already mentioned, thomasjord.com. It's got uh, essays and all kinds of stuff. I also, as you mentioned in my uh, bio, I direct the Center for Open Relational Theology. And there's lots of really great resources there, uh, in the uh, page called resources, including, uh, videos and bibliographies and podcasts and, uh, all kinds of stuff that if people are interested in these kinds of ideas, they, they want to go deeper, they could check that
1: out. That's awesome. And we'll link to all of that, of course, right on, on the podcast to make sure that there's people have access to that. And, uh. I'll leave you with the parting thoughts, John, since you got your finger on the record button. So, (laughs) oh, I, I, the only,
2: only thing I want to say at the end is, um, I I am, I can vouch 1000% that Tom will definitely respond to you if you, if you send him a, a message on Facebook or if you comment about one of his books. I don't think there's a single time where I have, uh, posted something about one of your books. Or uh, posted on something that you've posted that you have not responded to me. Uh, so, wow. uh, so anybody I really try hard uh, to do that? Yeah. yeah. So anyone who thinks that that's oh well he's probably too busy he's not going to do that that's absolutely not true. Uh, he's he's very good at getting back to us. Um, and yeah, I mean, I just I'm I'm speechless. I I uh, I, I yeah. So is is your head just not kind of spinning off?
1: right now? Okay. <laughs> well, I mean,
2: that's a good. thing. I think at one point. I think at one point I told Nat I was like I think I, I think I'm becoming an Ordian. Yeah, I I I'm, 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 I'm following that. Uh, well, don't do that, uh, that would, after reading that book. That ain't right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, again, I just want to thank you for uh, spending this hour with us. It was, it was it was awesome. Hey, it's been my pleasure. Great questions. And- Look forward to the next one, man. All right,
1: excellent.
0: All right, Thanks.
1: Thanks. thank you
2: very much. Love you, brother.
1: Peace. Yeah, you too. Love you guys. Thank you for listening to this is not church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.